Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. We have a great show today. We are going to continue our conversation on open systems architecture, and I'm pleased to be here with Dr. Ilya Lipkin from the U.S. Air Force Lifecycle Management Center and Mr. Ben Petticord from the U.S. Army Combat Capabilities Development Command. I'm also going to sit down with retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Jim Pryor, call sign Hook, to discuss the AOC's upcoming 58th Annual International Symposium and Convention. This event is going to be in person and the lineup of speakers is fantastic. Of course, From the Crow's Nest will be there and I'll be bringing you interviews with many of our speakers with a flurry of episodes that whole week. So it'll be a great event and very much looking forward to it. Before I formally introduce my guest, I want to thank our episode sponsor, Pacific Defense. Pacific Defense rapidly delivers military-use electromagnetic spectrum technology solutions to the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, and the industry partners. Learn more at pacific-defense.com. All right, I want to welcome my first two guests to the show. They are Dr. Ilya Lipkin. He is the technical expert for open architectures at Air Force Lifecycle Management Center, home office for the U.S. Air Force. He is also the steering committee chair for SOSA, the Sensor Open Systems Architecture Consortium. I also have Mr. Ben Petticord. He is the Intel Technology and Architecture Branch Chief at U.S. Army Futures Command Combat Capabilities Development Command C5ISR Center. Gentlemen, it's great to have you on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. So this is our second dedicated episode on open systems architecture, but it's been a topic uh, on many of our recent episodes as well. Uh, back in July, we had an industry perspective on the topic with uh, Roger Hoskin from Mercury Systems and Patrick Collier from Aspen Consulting, really talking about how industry is adapting to standards and this notion of conformance with the standards that were on the horizon back then. And so I wanted to ha have a follow-up episode with the government perspective. And so I wanted to have you both on, have a, uh, have a conversation about how government is addressing this topic. And so Dr. Lipkin, I wanted to start with you could you tell us a little bit about the SOSA Consortium and then the 1.0 standards were just released? And could you talk a little bit about what those standards represent and the benchmark that they set for the standards conversation? Sure. So SOSA Consortium actually has been in the years and years in the making. And it all started, believe it or not, at the one meeting at uh, PAC Server Maryland, where Nevere hosted me and Ben and uh, another partner to figure out what do we want to do. And when we reached an agreement between all three of us, that's when the SOSA was born. So as a matter of fact, Ben is the key founder of SOSA, just like me. Uh, he was there at day uh, minus one. <laughs> what is it all about? Well, it's about a vision that uh, we can do an open standard in partnership with the industry and uh, government representation as a team. And uh, what we wanted to accomplish is a holistic approach to standards development where we account for what does it take to build a sensor system and a sensor framework. 
I think it's been one amazingly wild ride. We never knew we were going to grow this big when we initially started it. All we wanted to in the very beginning is to align our three services together for reuse. So, and then just uh, grew from there. What does the evolution of this consortium mean? You had mentioned earlier before we got on the air, you have some experience with the Navy, you work for the Army, obviously Dr. Lipkin with the Air Force. All services were represented in this effort. What does the evolution of SOSA mean when you look at it today? You know, it's a big milestone getting into release version one of, of SOSA. And I think one of the things that, that I always tell people is that, you know, no standard that we write today is going to be the standard that we're going to want tomorrow. They have to be maintained and matured. So we recognized early on that we needed a standards body to do that work. You know, not all standards bodies are created equally. Not all of them succeed in producing you know, executable standards. I think with release of version one, we've shown that we can work with a very large group successfully. You know, as the Army, Navy, Air Force, together with industry, we can come to consensus on how to build open modular systems for the military. So can we get into the 1.0 standards? What are they and what are the first steps with the release of the standards? Uh, Dr. Lipkin, I'll, I'll start with you and then Ben, you know, you can follow up. So 1.0 is a milestone where we agreed between everyone, what does it mean to have interoperability and reuse between our embedded avionics systems for sensors? And not just sensors, quite a bit of it is implemented as mission computers or advanced intelligence uh, avionics systems, AIML. So what it really means at the end of the day is a first wholesale major agreement between government and industry to have seamless interoperability between our services and our sensor systems. So we're basically trying to build a guarantee. If you build a SOSA, you can reuse it on other programs or services. And uh, there you go, economies of scale. So with Army, you know, they have a what they call CMOS. And how does that relate to SOSA? I know that they work closely together. How do they align and how does 1.0 affect the Army CMOS effort? That's a great question. I think there's a lot of confusion sometimes between SOSA and CMOS. So CMOS is a C5ISR modular open suite of standards. As Dr. Lipkin mentioned, we started working together very early on, about 10 years ago, on the standards that that are now incorporated into SOSA version 1.0. At the time, you had different projects on the Army, Navy, and Air Force side all kind of working independently towards common goals. And we formed the SOSA consortium to help us align and build a common solution for those goals. You can think of CMOS as being an Army implementation of SOSA. That's, the, I think, the easiest way to explain it. So, you know, SOSA has more options in it than we have in CMOS. So it's kind of, in some sense, a subset of what's in SOSA. But we utilize the SOSA consortium to manage our standards development and industry engagement for the standards that we use within CMOS. You know, getting to version 1.0 of SOSA and getting, as I said earlier, getting concurrence from all the industry and government partners on that standard is a, is a sign of maturity. It's a sign of confidence from all the partners involved that, that these standards are ready to be used broadly in our various programs. So you know, with, with the evolution of CMOS, and I think that this probably aligns also with SOSA too, when we talk uh, electromagnetic spectrum operations, we oftentimes talk about the need for agility, adaptability, and really kind of the speed of development, getting new technology out there faster to the field, to the warfighter. What effect will CMOS have in the Army and then also with SOSA to address these three fundamental challenges of modern combat where we need to have greater agility, adaptability, and speed of development? Yeah, so 
Sosa and CMOS provide the framework with which we can build a truly open and modular C5 ISR and EW implementation. That means that we have a common functional decomposition of the solutions that are on the platform. We have common, well-defined interfaces. And that means it's possible for us, for any application on the platform now, to access any of the information that's available to any sensors on the platform. And that's really provides revolutionary agility. And for that matter, in many cases, enhanced performance period for any particular application. Because you have a pool of sensors now, you have a pool of processors and a pool of effectors. And you don't have to live with just a piece of information that was built for your particular stovepiped capability now. You can, you can harness all the information available on the platform and use it however you need. And so from an agility perspective, that makes all the difference in the world. You can now write a simple software application that can take information that you, you may not have originally known was important use it, process it, and cause an effect to happen in a very rapid timescale. In terms of adaptability, it's also, that was really one of, the, one of the primary goals and drivers when we were developing the standards. You know, you don't know for sure today what hardware you're going to need tomorrow in tomorrow's fight and when technology progresses and things change. With the uh, support for truly COTS, ruggedized embedded computing elements and transceivers and other infrastructure, CMOS makes it much easier for you to buy an off-the-shelf ruggedized solution and deploy it in the field without developing custom integration kits for platforms and a whole bunch of other boring stuff that normally I think people don't appreciate how hard those things are. So if you have a really new compute capability or new GPU you need to field, if you have to develop custom integration kits on your platforms, that adds you know, years to the de, de, to the deployment uh, timeframe. And that's part of the reason why we struggle so much to, to really pace state of the art. So CMOS makes it possible for you to field new hardware very rapidly. It makes it possible for you to field new software applications very rapidly. It enables frequent incremental changes rather than infrequent whole scale, you know, tear the roots and branches out and, and replace everything. So if you have to adapt your solution and you, there's a particular piece of hardware or software you need, you can drop that in replace a small component without and reutilize all the existing infrastructure in a way that hasn't been possible previously. And Dr. Lipkin, I was wondering if you could address, you know, from a SOSA perspective, this notion of uh, how the SOSA 1.0 standard is going to address directly agility, adaptability, and speed of development. Actually, I'm going to give you three short stories. First story happened uh, when we released Snapshot two of SOSA technical standard, and we had a flight demo. Unfortunately, the vendor who was providing us uh, the uh, processing and requirements and software bailed out. So after about five hours of intense calling uh, SOSA members, I found an alternative solution. We can have later, we use that one instead. So uh, without SOSA, that wouldn't be possible. Imagine pivoting to somebody else who was not participating in that particular initiative, taking them and uh, flying as an alternative. Second story, uh, we uh, contracted with one of the uh, performers to build us another solution. And frankly, they failed to deliver on time on schedule. So what we did is we took an alternative solution completely from the left field, still based on SOSA, and used that instead. It took us about three weeks uh, to adjust the uh, software hardware implementation, and we were operational again. And uh, the third story just happened in the last six weeks. An army program called us for help because one of their uh, solutions broke. So because there were no spares, uh, they asked for help for the Air Force to see if we can provide them alone equipment based on SOSA technical standards, snapshot three, I believe. We had a phone call on Monday. They had an operational deployment uh, the following week. We shipped them the equipment overnight. Uh, They bolted it to the aircraft and it's flying now. 
So without Sosa, uh, those speeds are simply impossible. So what I was going to say is what we build is already paying dividends, allowing us to field faster, react faster, and frankly, sustain easier because all it took is a couple of phone calls to find another Sosa-based solution and uh, use that as a substitute. Just to add a little bit to that, you know, the Air Force, Army, and Navy folks participating in SOSA are routinely benefiting from each other's efforts now. And that, that is something that hasn't been possible before we had common standards. You know, we are using this interoperable components and are routinely able to swap in and cover each other's needs as, as necessary. And as more of us use more parts based on the same standards, it certainly makes it easier for industry to support us and build in quantity uh, more affordably. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community, for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had, had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. 
So these stories, I think, you know, represent something that's really important for, I think, our listeners to uh, understand is that, you know, we're not just talking when we talk 1.0 standards, it's not just a piece of paper that's outlining standards. I mean, it goes beyond theory and bureaucracy and everything. It's, this has been demonstrated, particularly over the summer. You know, CMOS and SOCI, they, they've both been demonstrated over the summer. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about some of these demonstrations that have happened in the success and what it's taught you about how the path that we are on, that this is the right path moving forward based on past experiences. Sure, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about a couple of the exercises. I'm sure Ilya also has some things to share. On the Army side, we have an annual network modernization exercise. We call it NetModX. We had a number of vendors bring capabilities, uh, CMOS and SOSA-based capability, to that event. And they were able to show, you know, actually what we were just talking about a little bit ago, that ability to really rapidly adapt and field new capability. They, they brought literally out to the field in New Jersey solutions that were based on CMOS dropped them into our platform, integrated them in, you know, in the period of a day or less, and then demonstrated them as part of the exercise. And we had that from, from several vendors, as, as well as an implementation from the government side. We have multiple program offices that are building CMOS-based solutions. There's a pod that flies on a Gray Eagle currently, and a couple other implementations in, in progress right now. We are preparing for a an exercise just next month that will be in New Mexico. So there, there's a lot of hardware, a lot of different program offices implementing, and uh, we're having tremendous success getting our solutions to interoperate and, and adapt rapidly. Dr. Lipkin, do you have anything to add? Yeah, one of the things is, as you know, SOSA is multi-in centric. Uh, so we're building a common ecosystem between software and hardware to support it. And a cool example of it is I have an EOIR prototype I'm currently developing for the Air Force, and a lot of the equipment inside that EOIR prototypes are actually built for RF exploits such as radar, SIG, and DW. So what we've been demonstrating is the commonality of a multi-int, and the electromagnetic spectrum domain is actually paying dividends, cutting across silos of excellence. In the past, people wouldn't consider reusing RF components to support EOIR systems. After all, one's a camera, the other one's an antenna. But if you break it down to common standards, common interfaces, you can actually demonstrate savings and reuse across uh, phenomenologies of interest. So we've had a lot of success uh, leveraging stuff developed for radar in uh, EW or stuff developed for EOIR, SIGINT, uh, so on and so forth. So it's really becoming uh, an interesting uh, challenge to keep it all together. One of the things that we oftentimes talk about when we talk uh, electromagnetic warfare is this notion of multifunction systems. And we, for years, we've said, hey, okay, this is where technology is taking us. You're no longer talking about an EW box. You're talking about a box that does EW along with radar and other things. Uh, but one of the challenges was always, can the government buy a multifunction system? Doesn't know how to buy a multifunction system. Um, and it seems to me, when, hearing you talk, that w with SOSA and CMOS, this is basically the mechanism where DOD now understands how to develop and buy these types of systems. Is that an accurate take that basically these standards allow us or provide us the ability and understanding to really pursue multifunction systems on the scale that we need to for modern combat? So I'll, I'll speak a little bit to that. I think what CMOS and SOSA have shown is that it's technically possible for us to build these types of systems in a, in a truly open and modular way. So in the old days, if we wanted to build a multifunction system, it would have been integrated by a single system integrator who would have kind of permanently owned all access to that system. It would have been assembled probably even, even from their perspective in a, in a largely proprietary manner. And, and I think they would have themselves struggled to, to keep it 
maintained and, and up to date because it would have been difficult to find parts that could slot in and, and be upgraded easily. So what SOSA and CMOS has shown is that we can build an ecosystem of components and functional blocks that can be easily put together and, and integrated. There are still challenges on, on the acquisition side of things. You know, the DoD acquisition is, is not structured around, around sharing hardware across programs and sharing capabilities. The way that we develop requirements and, and other things traditionally is fairly stovepiped. We're working to address that. We're working hard in the Army to address that. Army Futures Command has done a lot of work that's, that's kind of helping us move the ball forward in that respect. And, and as I, I mentioned earlier, we're currently working on a, a solution that integrates position navigation and timing along with comms, EW, and Mission Command. And we have a requirement developed for us to build that for the Army. But it is still, you know, I think a structural challenge to figure out how to do that. But on the technical side, we, we've removed a lot of the technical barriers. I think a number of our vendors are, are choosing to use SOSA and CMOS internally, even if not required by the government, for the reason I mentioned earlier, which is that it helps them actually to maintain a state of the art within their, their solution, because they now have standard components that they can drop in easily themselves. And I think what a lot of us have come to realize is that you know, your speed of innovation, the speed with which the performance of a solution improves is actually more important than how performant it is today, because over the long term, that's going to that's gonna actually control how well you do. So if you spend a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of time making a really great system today, but you can't upgrade it you know, next year, then you're very quickly going to have a mediocre system and then an obsolete system. So we've removed a lot of the technical barriers. There's still work to do on, on kind of the hard problems, which are kind of DOD acquisition related. Dr. Lipkin? I would say it's one for one for the Air Force, but we have more bureaucracy. That would be the best way to differentiate the two services. We're definitely struggling with the exact same issues. Um, how do I get the EOIR program to work together, whether it's a radar program or a SIGIN program, even though they can leverage the same commonalities? So that is the biggest challenge there is currently within Air Force. How do I enable silos of excellence to talk to each other once you realize they're actually buying same equipment or same components or same modules? So a lot of our activities are actually on our end trying to reduce risk to adapting programs with the prototypes and demonstration events that this is mature enough for them to go full scale. Hopefully that kind of helps to frame. So what is the next step then in, in, this, in this challenge? Because obviously there's a lot of lessons that we can learn on the positive side about how these standards have been developed and, and the technical barriers that have been overcome by SOSA and CMOS. Certainly, what is the next step then in, in addressing some of these challenges? What do you see on the horizon as where DOD is going? So I can speak to some of the, the work that I know we're doing. The, the Army is very serious about deploying modular open systems. Right now, a CMOS is a very important part of that. We have been asked to deliver you know, integrated, modular, open, tactical communications, mission command, EW, and position navigation, assured position and navigation and timing in the very near future. And so there are requirements rolling out for that. You know, that, is a lot, that represents a lot of different technologies, a lot of different vendors that need to work together. And we are working to support the industrial base in you know, implementing standards-based solutions that can be rapidly and easily integrated into upcoming events that, that demonstrate that we can do that. We know that we can't 
field solutions that are state-of-the-art, that are best in class if we can't integrate them. That, that's true with or without CMOS. The, the, the ability to fuse and utilize all the information and all the sensors and all of the effectors on a platform for every application is essentially, from a technical perspective, low-hanging fruit. And if, if we can't go ahead and take that fruit and, and use it, we will not pace our adversaries. So we're taking the steps forward to do that, and we want to do it in an open modular way that, that enables us to, to have the agility and adaptability that we talked about earlier. So on the Air Force side, to be honest, uh, I don't know how to answer that question because we're still trying to figure out what our strategy is. There are several initiatives within the Air Force that try to address that question as we speak. And until they form up or more mature, I'm simply not comfortable discussing them. But uh, the best way I can tell you is uh, we have internal requirements that drives us to do this. We're just trying to figure out what is the most effective and efficient way to address them at this moment in time. I would say uh, we're in a discovery phase would be the best way of putting it. One other thing I'd, I'd mention is that we also have international partners that are working and using these same standards. And I can say in an open forum that the United Kingdom is also pursuing solutions based on, on these standards. You actually jumped like three questions ahead of me, but we'll go with that for right now. But I, I did want to talk about now that CMOS and SOS standards are a reality and the industrial base is kind of rapidly growing, you know, how fast do you see the U.S. government moving to unify around these? And how will you advance cooperation with NATO and, and allied forces in, in terms of pushing these uh, standards forward? I think one of the important decisions we made as we developed the standards that became SOSA and CMOS is that we worked hard to try to utilize standards that were already supported, already available publicly. And we ended up building a suite of standards which is publicly releasable. You know, it's, it's not only unclassified, but it's publicly releasable. It's available without any limitation on distribution. And that has really eased a lot of the concerns of our, of our international partners. So a lot of times in the past, the DOD has spent a lot of money developing really great standards and specifications, which were then very difficult for our international partners to use due to concerns, you know, ITAR concerns of, uh, you know, with basically arms export regulations. By producing a standard that's publicly released, that has made it tremendously easier for our international partners to, to leverage the standards. Their industrial base and their manufacturers can access and utilize the standards without any concerns about violating export regulations. I would say one more thing. We also figure out a sweet spot between the need to keep things uh, U.S. only and the need to work with NATO partners. For example, everything we do is PO-approved to be distribution A, available to everybody around the world. But we do have uh, specialized appendixes that are available at the higher levels of approval based on what we want to do. But those are appendixes. Those are not, not the actual standard. And they are there to serve the needs for the armed services to keep something back that we think is critical for our warfighter success. And so it's a sweet spot. That would be the best way to describe it. It's very open and uh, just restrictive enough to make it useful. So Dr. Lipkin, oftentimes when we talk about standards, we talk about you know, developing new technology and getting into the field. The other component of this is, of course, and you mentioned earlier in one of your answers, and I wanted to pull the thread a little bit more, is this notion of sustaining technology, sustaining systems in the field. You know, you're with the Lifecycle Management Center. Obviously, you're involved in this on a daily basis. Could you talk a little bit about how standards really improve the, our ability to sustain capability in the field as new threats arise and so forth? Absolutely. So one of our challenges today is it takes us a very long time to develop the system, then field the system. By the time it's fielded, we're looking five years from the moment you went, go, here's your money. 
And if you think about it, it's a four-year cycle before industry goes into obsolescence for commercially available components. You're basically fielding systems that are obsolete. So with standards, what we can do is we can field against the standard with what's commercially latest available at day zero, and then do a seamless tech refresh right before fielding right into the same components. Because with an open standard, you're guaranteed interoperability and plug and playability. So that actually gives us ability to field cutting edge technologies uh, through the life cycle of the system. And when I say life cycle, I'm talking 20, 30, 40 years. So what we're really doing is we're building in a tech refresh speed into our current systems using open standards that are widely commercially available. Ben, do you have anything to add? Sure. You know, we kind of did our homework when we were getting ready to, to kick off the work that became SOSA, and we did a bunch of analysis. One, one of those was kind of costing exercise. And when you look at the majority of the expense for a DoD system is, is in the sustainment phase. We spend lots of money developing systems, but it pales in comparison to the long-term sustainment costs. So sustainment costs really matter, and there are tremendous savings that we expect from using these standards in, in the sustainment phase of things. And it's not just a matter of cost savings, but it's actually an opportunity to simultaneously save money and improve performance, which is you know something you don't usually get to improve performance and save money at the same time. And so an example of how that happens is that we can upgrade via spares. So we have a lot of simple computers in our platforms, you know, Intel processors, basically. And, you know, for whatever reason, one of those fails, you need, to re- you need to replace it. What we frequently do is we replace that part with an identical part, even if it's an obsolete 30-year-old part, right? Just because we can't afford the integration headaches that we have otherwise. What SOSA and CMOS enable is for us to take a newer, you know, much more capable part and drop it in as a replacement when, when a component fails. So it lets us upgrade via spares. It lets us have a greatly reduced number of types of items that are in the inventory so that we can have the spares we need without having as many as large a variety in the warehouse, which drives tremendous amounts of savings. By having common components across programs and across services, it, it reduces the cost of the individual components as they're replaced. So I think on the logistics and training and sustainment side, there are actually e- enormous benefits to this approach. Uh, also creates a lot of fun challenges. I was uh, at the program of uh, one of the program's meetings and they said, well, we can reuse between these two programs. Great. But the logisticians were really nervous because that means program A can borrow parts from program B if a higher level uh, officer tells them to do so. And then they're, what are you going to do to my spares? I didn't spare it for two programs, I only spare it for one. So it creates an, an interesting uh, conundrum on my side. How do we deal with the uh, changes that the open standards bring in uh, more flexible supply chain logistics, where it's not just one program parts, it's two program parts that are commonly shared. All of these things require adaptation in our approach to business. As Dr. Lipkin just mentioned, you know, folks are used to planning sparing for a particular program. Now we need to think across programs to realize some of the savings and benefits. But in reality, I think when you speak to logisticians, this is, again, actually an opportunity to make the overall job easier because when you're looking at sparing for a particular item, particularly if it's not fielded in very large quantities, you can have very large spikes in demand and, and then spots where you have very little demand. Whereas if you spread this out across a larger number of units and across more programs, you have a statistical process that smooths out the logistical side of things and you don't have to plan for big spikes and droughts as, as much. So we have time for one more quick question. And uh, you know, I asked this, you know, when I opened the show, I mentioned that this is our second episode. The first one we did was with an industry perspective. And I asked them a similar question about government that I want to end with asking you about industry. You know, there's been a lot of success on standards here up to today. For the success to continue, 
obviously you have to work in partnership with all the services and then of course industry. So what do you need from industry to continue the success of SOSA and CMOS moving forward? And Dr. Lipkin, I'll start with you. To be honest, keep advocating to use SOSA everywhere. A lot of times when I go into the program of record, if the industry partner already introduced them to SOSA, it's an easy sell because the risk is reduced. My prime's recommending. So I would say um, keep industry advocating for us everywhere. That is the best way forward. It's pretty simple. I think the two things we really need from industry are, are for them to utilize the standards in their products, whether they're a, a prime integrator or whether they're a COT supplier. Build your systems with support for the standards that we're asking for. That makes it tremendously easier for us and, and everybody to build standards-based solutions. The second thing would be to participate in standards development. We know that the standard we have today isn't the standard we're going to want tomorrow. It's never going to be perfect. We want your input. You know, the SOSA Consortium provides a venue for you to help us make things better. Now, Ben did make a good point. SOSA does have a venue that is quite unique within the United States and DOD. We have major vendors who generate the silicon, such as Intel and uh, Primes, who put it all together, as well as the end users. So I'm hoping that the industry will take advantage of the fact that we're all around the same table as we develop the standard to make sure we address all the areas of concern, all the way from the silicon to how we actually use it with the end user. All right. That is all the time we have for today. Dr. Lipkin and Mr. Petticord, I greatly appreciate you taking time to join me on From the Crow's Nest and great discussion. I look forward to continuing discussing this topic with you in the future. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you as well. This has been a great experience. All right, to wrap up this episode, I am here with retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Jim Pryor, call sign Hook. He is a member of the AOC Board of Directors, and he is also chairman of our fast-approaching AOC 2021, the 58th Annual AOC International Symposium and Convention. Hook, it's great to have you on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Ken. It's good to be here. So I wanted to have you on the podcast to talk a little bit about the convention that's coming up. The theme for this year's convention is All Domain Operations, Integrating Effects Across the Spectrum. Could you unpack that theme for us a little bit and tell us what kind of message you want to share with the attendees about the role that EMSO plays in All Domain Operations? You bet. After being involved in the electromagnetic spectrum work for the better part of uh, 35 years or so, it's apparent to me as well to the larger majority of the membership of the Association of All Crows and those that participate in it, is that the spectrum is foundational to success in all domains and in all operations. So we really can't overemphasize the importance of the spectrum, electromagnetic spectrum, as it empowers all those operations. You really have to have an integrated and synchronized application of capabilities across all those warfighting domains throughout the electromagnetic spectrum in order to be effective. You have to be able to not only field those capabilities, but command and control them, and when necessary, fully utilize, strategize, plan, and effectively uh, execute any of the missions anywhere in the world. And so we see the electromagnetic spectrum as the key enabler to all domain operations. And when you talk about EMSO as being a foundational element or the backbone of almost everything we want to do in all domain operations, that brings you face-to-face -face with a host of issues. So with our convention, you know, we, we have it organized as we have a number of general sessions, keynote speakers, but we also have a series of breakouts so that we can start to dive into these topics with some more depth. Could you talk a little bit about the, some of the breakout sessions that we have and other speakers that we have coming and what pieces of this issue are they going to be talking about? 
Sure. So I think outside of those specific sessions, right, uh, that are important to the discussion, the ones that particularly speak to me that I'm the most excited about is one, we have our program manager briefing series. And these are very particular events where the attendees that can attend those interact directly with the program manager's offices on statuses, status and efforts of key programs that are part and parcel to operations inside the electromagnetic spectrum. That is one of the primary efforts inside this symposium is to bring everybody together and also put industry, governance, and Department of Defense, military, as well as civilian controllers into face-to-face conversations about what's going on inside these, these advanced programs. And so that's one of, the, one of the most important ones. And I really enjoy those particular briefing series because they are one-on-one and they're very personal. We also have several keynote and spotlight speakers, such as Lieutenant General Clinton Q. Highnote, right? He's the Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategy Integration Requirements for the Air Force. And I've known General Highnote for a while. He is working really hard to solve a lot of these long-range problems and issues inside the electromagnetic spectrum, and, and he's the guy to help us do that. We also have uh, people like Mr. John Sherman, who's the acting CIO for the DOD. We have Lieutenant General Thomas Todd, who's closing out our sessions um, at the convention, and he is the Deputy Commanding General for Army Futures Command, and so he'll be talking about PC-21. We have uh, the USA, the Air Force's Chief Scientist, uh, General Coleman. We have Michelle Flournoy and the Honorable Heidi Hsu, who's the CTO for the Office of the Secretary, Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, and several other individual panel speakers that speak to not just tactical application, but also operational control, doctrine, and policy issues that we uh, need to address inside the uh, electromagnetic spectrum and all domain operations. And um, in addition, I think there's also several sessions that speak to a broader AOC membership and audience, and that ranges from TED Talk-style presentation on autonomy and uh, software programmable radios. It's going to be given by a group of young crows. And that's, you know, folks that are a little bit, a little bit younger, beginning on their uh, journey as advocates for the spectrum, as well as the young crows themselves, to a panel on um, some of the most exciting things that are coming out after the last few years inside the U.S.'s Department of Defense, like um, a panel on models-based systems engineering and how that applies to all domain operations and how that accelerates the ability to um, develop and field capability. So, that's, that's just a ballpark of what we have planned for this particular symposium, and I think we have a pretty broad offering, and um, it's all really exciting stuff. It's clear from the agenda you know, the, the tremendous scope of the speakers, the services represented, the, the topics covered, the, the seniority, the, the levels of, of technical and operational expertise, and, and it, it speaks to something that's very relevant with our community is that we're, we're really spread out across the defense industrial base complex of government, industry, academia. We're not centralized in any way. And so it's very important for us to have these events where we can come together. And the, and the great thing about this convention coming up is for the first time, obviously, in, the, in, in two years, we are back in person. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of coming together in person and particularly for the EMSA community? Why is it necessary that if you're in this professional space that you come to our convention in person? Sure. So. And you touched on the premise, right, which is that electronic warfare and electromagnetic spectrum operations touches almost everything we do. And that means that that stakeholders, those participants, those users of the spectrum are really broad and across the entire globe. And there's always the opportunity to connect via electronic means, email, 
phone calls, things like that. But that there's never anything better than a face-to-face discussion where you can actually see other people, see the passion, see the, um, see the intricate details of what they're trying to explain to you. There's just no way around it that that is not a, a great way to, to further both knowledge and progress inside the IMSO uh, community. And I think the AOC Symposium is one of the only places where this particular group of people comes together. I mean, there, there are part and parcel and pieces and parts that are through other shows, symposiums and conventions throughout the year at other locations. But this is the one, this is the only one that is dedicated to this particular effort. And so I think, it, it, as you said, it's just important to have that one-on-one so that a conversation that begins um, after seeing a panel that turns into a discussion later between two individuals after a panel and may even progress uh, later into the afternoon over dinner to really start and resolve some of the issues that they see. It's, you, you really can't replace that. It's really about building trust in those relationships that you just can't seem to develop as quickly virtually. So we look forward to having those at the, at the convention uh, throughout the week. And obviously, since we're back in person, though, you know, there's a lot of concern about that. And so we do have a policy, a vaccination policy that we've had to implement for this week. And I was wondering if you could just b- briefly tell the listeners what to expect from a vaccination safety standpoint for the AOC. So what we've uh, coordinated for our particular effort is cleared through the standard practices that I think we've seen at uh, other shows in the metropolitan D.C. area, as well as the local uh, jurisdictions. And so what that means is um, in order to gain your credentials to attend the, um, the sessions, you will have to show proof of vaccination in order to attend, and we will be wearing masks during the event as well. So that's where we sit with this, and um, I think that is a great way for us to ensure that as we are meeting face-to-face and having these conversations, that we're all doing it in a relatively safe environment so that we're not causing anybody any health issues in the future. Great. Well, thank you for taking some time to talk about the convention. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Ilya Lipkin, Mr. Ben Pettacord, and AOC Convention Chair Jim Pryor. I also want to thank our episode sponsor, Pacific Defense. Pacific Defense rapidly delivers military-use electromagnetic spectrum technology solutions to the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, and industry partners. Learn more at pacific-defense.com. Finally, to learn more about the upcoming 58th Annual AOC International Symposium and Convention, please visit our website at crows.org slash 2021home. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.